Church of Ours, an author named Jonathan Lehman introduces the topic at hand this morning this way. He asks these questions. He said, what would you think of a coach who instructs his players but never drills them? Or a math teacher who explains the lesson but never corrects her students' mistakes? Or a doctor who talks about health but ignores cancer? You would probably say that all of them are doing about half of their job, right? Athletic training requires instructing and drilling. Teaching math requires explaining and correcting. Doctoring requires encouraging health and fighting disease, right? Okay. What would you think about a church that teaches and disciples but doesn't practice church discipline? Does that make sense to you? Well, I agree with Lehman. He says, I assume that it makes sense to many churches because every church teaches and disciples, but so few practice church discipline. The problem is making disciples without discipline makes us much like a doctor who ignores tumors. We can understand the reluctance to practice church discipline. It's been done so poorly, so often. It has such a negative connotation. It is difficult. It is sensitive. But still, the reluctance to practice church discipline, a reluctance that many of us will feel, may suggest that we believe ourselves to be wiser and more loving than God. Friends, we must practice biblical church discipline when necessary because it is the most loving thing that we can do. And my prayer this morning is that our church will love one another, our church, and the glory of God enough to practice biblical church discipline when necessary. Our sermon text is 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Please take your copy of God's word. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This text is an extreme case of church discipline. Like, ridiculously extreme case of church discipline. But like like a lot of analogies or metaphors, the extreme gives clarity for the normal. And as we study 1 Corinthians 5, this is, this is God's word that we're studying about a real church who had a real problem 
And what we're going to see here is that the Apostle Paul addresses the problem and he explains the solution and the reasons for this solution. So if you're looking for, um, you know, sort of an outline this morning, that's what we're going to see. We're going to see the problem and the solutions and then the reasons for those solutions. So 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is our sermon text. And by the way, if you haven't been with us now for the past 14 weeks, this is just the next text. We're not studying 1 Corinthians 5 because of any particular occasion. Except that it's the next text in a series of now four chapters, 13 sermons. This is chapter 5, sermon number 14. And it's God's word to us, and friends, it's good. 1 Corinthians 5, this is God's word. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit. And and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter, not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all, meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you would have to need go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or as an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This is God's word. Amen and amen. Did you recognize that Paul immediately begins by addressing 
not the problem, but two problems. There are two problems here. First, a big problem. (laughs) The man's sin. Did you see in verse 1? A man has his father's wife. Uh, This man who claims to be a Christian and a member of the church at Corinth has an ongoing immoral relationship with his stepmother. Apparently the, the woman whom his father married after the death or divorce of his biological mother. Paul calls this sin sexual immorality. Apparently there was a lot of sexual immorality in Corinth, in the culture of Corinth, and even in the church at Corinth, because Paul addresses sexual immorality in chapter 5, in chapter 6, in chapter 7, in chapter 10, and then again in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Sexual immorality was a pervasive problem in the culture and, unfortunately, the church at Corinth. And we actually see sexual immorality addressed throughout the New Testament. Nearly every letter that Paul writes, he addresses this issue. It was a big problem in the church. And this particular case, this particular man, his sin was particularly heinous. Did you see in verse 1? The kind that is not even tolerated among pagans. So certainly, having your father's wife was against God's law. The Jews all knew this. It was addressed specifically in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. But even in the first century before Jesus, you know, a hundred years plus before Paul ever wrote this letter, Romans like Cicero expressed disgust at this kind of a union particularly. This is a big problem. It's a heinous sin. But friends, for Paul, there was a bigger problem. The bigger problem is the church's indifference toward this man's sin. Paul's like, you've got a big problem. It's reported that there's a man among you who's engaged in an ongoing immoral relationship. But he doesn't talk too much about that. He now addresses the biggest problem, and that is that the church is tolerating this man and his sin. That's the biggest problem in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the church's indifference. In verse 1, there is sexual immorality among you, church. Verse 2, and you are arrogant. Ought not you rather to mourn? Their response to this man's sin and Paul's response to the same sin is incredibly different, isn't it? They are indifferent about it. Paul is horrified by it. The church at Corinth doesn't take this sin seriously. 
So look at what Paul says about their corporate attitudes and actions in light of obvious sin. Verse 2, they are arrogant when they should be mourning. Now, what does it mean that the church is arrogant when they should be mourning? It's, it's amazing to think that a church would be arrogant because arrogant means to be puffed up in pride. They're puffed up in their self-importance. They're puffed up in their self-congratulations, but over this guy's sin? How is that possible? We think that's unthinkable. How is it even possible? Well, let me, let me give you two possibilities. In fact, I'll give you one plausible and then one, one that I consider to be po- uh, probable. Plausible, yeah, it's within reason. Probable, I'm more convinced of it than the other, but I don't have the authoritarian view on this. So the plausible view, uh, when Paul says you're arrogant, what he's saying is you are arrogant about your spiritual maturity, but you haven't done anything about this guy who is blatantly sinful among you. So they don't necessarily condone or embrace or excuse this man's sin. They just don't do anything about it. And maybe, maybe they think they are being loving by not doing anything about it. Plausible. More probably, I'm more convinced about this because of the entire situation of the letter. When Paul says, you are arrogant, they're arrogant about this behavior considering it acceptable because they are spiritual people now. Do you remember how chapter 1 and 2 and 3, Paul keeps going at their false definition and false sense of spirituality? One of their slogans that Paul addresses specifically in chapter 6 is that all things are lawful for me. Have you ever heard Christians talking like that? All things are lawful for me. Just like many in the New Testament, they claim to be free in Christ now that they were, they were forgiven in their, their spiritual people, in their warped sense of spirituality. Anthony Thistleton says they believed, quote, they were on a new plane of life and they felt that they could, could do anything. Remember in chapter 4? Verse 8, they had an over-realized eschatology and acted like they reigned as kings. And Paul rebuked them for this. They reigned as if they were free from even the Jewish law. They're free from common Gentile modes of morality. As spiritual people, they just follow however the Spirit leads. Yikes, in all caps, with exclamation points. Well, whatever the actual relationship of their pride to this immorality, it has blinded them both to the fallen brother's condition and to their own spiritual condition, hasn't it? They are arrogant when they should be mourning. Look at verse 6. They are boasting about their spiritual maturity, 
when there's outrageous sin in their church. Look at verse 11. They are associating with those who claim to be Christians but live openly sinful lifestyles when they should be displaying God's holiness within a sinful world. This church doesn't take sin seriously. That's the big problem of chapter 5. The church at Corinth tolerates sin that horrifies Paul. I wonder what sin we tolerate that horrifies Jesus. This chapter is going to challenge us on our views of sexuality within our culture. I wonder if a lot of the culture's views on sexuality hasn't crept into the church. This chapter is going to challenge our view on marriage and divorce. In fact, Paul gives an entire chapter to it, chapter 7. I wonder what sin we tolerate that horrifies Jesus. And I wonder if we aren't being infected by the spirit of the culture rather than shining as lights to a dark world. Beyond sexual immorality, look at verse 11. It's not the only thing that apparently was a, was a big problem in the church at Corinth. Verse 11 challenges us to consider our view of greed. I'm glad they only dealt with that, not us. Idolatry, you know, what we live for, what really motivates us, what we love. Reviling. Reviling is angry, aggressive, hateful speech. Drunkenness. Swindling. Swindling is unethical business practices. Apparently, these were common sins within the church. The kinds of things that those who claimed to be Christians were involved in. What sins have become acceptable to us that are unacceptable to Christ? Jerry Bridges in his book, Respectable Sins, subtitled, Confronting the Sins We Tolerate says this. Shall we presume on God's grace by tolerating in ourselves the very sin that nailed Christ to the cross? Paul's answer in Romans chapter 6 couldn't be more clear. God forbid. How can we who are dead to sin still live? There are two problems at the church at Corinth. The man's sin and the church's indifference. And so Paul gives two solutions to these two problems. 
Solution number one, look at the end of verse two. Ought you not rather to mourn? Rather than tolerating, rather than being arrogant about your spirituality and tolerating this sin that even the pagans find to be disgusting, ought you not rather to mourn? Paul encourages, challenges, calls the church, them and us, to mourn over sin. You know, I even thought this week how often we hear that we ought to hate sin. Paul says we ought to mourn about it. I wonder what our disposition is. Mourn about sin. James picked this up from Jesus. He says in chapter 4, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now listen to the verbs as we walk through this. James says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil. He'll flee from you. Draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. James addressed the sin of the people of God in his area and in his day. And he, like the Old Testament prophets, said, put on sackcloth and ashes and weep and mourn over your sin. And then Jesus comes along and promises this, blessed are they who mourn for they shall be comforted. So friends, if you wonder whether you might be tolerating the things that Christ rejects, how do we increase our sensitivity to sin so that we mourn rather than tolerate sin? May I suggest that this is one of the reasons that we read God's word every day. We go to God's word and we recalibrate our minds all week long. We are, our minds are calibrated by the culture around us and the people around us. And so every day we go and we recalibrate our minds by reading God's view of man and sin and the gospel. When we read God's word, we recalibrate, we recalibrate our sensitivity to sin by seeing God's holiness. By seeing that God's ways are always good and lead to life. And by seeing that our sin always leads to destruction. And have you learned this one very important lesson in life? Sin ruins everything. Everything. When we decide to do what we want to do rather than what God says that we should do, it ruins everything. <laughs> Blessed is the man who rejects the counsel of man but meditates on the counsel through the word of God. 
He will be like a tree that's situated by a river that just keeps on producing fruit of righteousness rather than withering and dying. Psalm 1. So Paul says the first solution is that the church should mourn sin. Church, I encourage us to go there. I encourage us to every day recalibrate our thoughts and our minds and our hearts to really uh, understand God and his view by reading his word. Solution number two, remove the repentant sinner. So just like there was a big problem and then a bigger problem, he starts with the bigger problem and he says, you need to begin to mourn sin. And now he addresses the big problem. He said, you need to remove the unrepentant sinner. Look at verse two at the end. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Be removed from among you. This and the rest of the chapter is where we get the term church discipline. This and other scriptures. And I think we have to at least ask four questions when we think about this. Just look there again at verse 2. Let him who has done this be removed from you. First question I have is what authority does the church have to remove anyone? I mean, isn't this a... Everybody's welcome, come one, come all. Verse 4, when you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power, the authority of our Lord Jesus, what we see here is the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ being exercised through his church. This is so important that we're going to tag this and then do a whole sermon on it next week. The authority behind church discipline will be our sermon for next week. But for right now, let me just hit the high points. What authority does the church have to remove anyone? Well, when a church brings someone into membership, they're affirming their public confession to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Church membership affirms, keyword affirms, a person's understanding of the gospel and confirms the evidence of repentance and faith in their life. You understand the gospel of Jesus and you, by your works, are following Jesus. From all that we can tell, we affirm that you are a brother in Christ. In the same way, church discipline removes someone from membership. And church discipline is saying we can no longer affirm your profession to be a Christian. Why? Because of how you live. Because you're not following Jesus. You're not obeying Jesus. Membership does not make anyone a Christian. And discipline does not make anyone a non-Christian. But it does say that we as a church, by listening to you and by looking at your life, can no longer affirm that your words are true that your confession about being a believer is true. That's the authority that God has given 
the local church. We're going to explore all of that next week through Matthew 16 and 18. I have a second question. When it says, let him who has done this be removed from you, well, what kind of sins warrant removal? Like, I've already sinned this morning. Should I be removed from the church? My wife and I were talking on the way over here, and, and we were talking about how, how sinful we all are. What kinds of sins warrant such severe action of being removed from the church? Well, we, will, we learn from 1 Corinthians chapter 5 three things. Number one, outward sins. Number two, significant sins. Number three, unrepentant sins. There is the kicker. Outward sins, sins that are, look, I have so much pride in my heart. I'm so selfish on the inside. You guys should excommunicate me, remove me from this church every hour of every day. I am a pervasive sinner. What happens on the inside is a wrestling and a struggling every day. That's different than openly living a sinful lifestyle, isn't it? It's no less heinous to God, but it's different because now the reputation of the church and what it means to be a Christian is on the line for everyone to see. So open, outward sin, significant sin. You might say all sin is significant, okay? Well, we learned that in this, this chapter that some sins are, like, really massive, the kinds that you just can't let, all right? Now, we should not tolerate any sin, but church discipline in the Bible is reserved for significant sins, according to this and other texts. The list in verse 11 drunkenness, swindling, and then unrepentant, circle that, highlight that, underline that one, unrepentant. See, here's, the, here's what a faithful Christian looks like. A faithful, blood-bought Christian looks like someone who sins and hates it and confesses and repents and, and sins and hates it and confesses and repents and sins and hates it and confesses and repents. We are never going to be delivered from our sin or our flesh until we're on the other side of Jordan. Until then, it's a war all day, every day. And Christians hate sin and war against sin. They don't tolerate it, excuse it, embrace it. Unrepentance, refusal to change. That's the sins that warrant such a severe action. I have a third question. What does, quote-unquote, removing a person from among you actually look like? So if they're supposed to remove this person, what, what does that mean? Well, Paul gives a little bit more definition to that in verse 9 through 11. You're going to see one word a couple of times. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Verse 11, but now I'm writing to you in this other letter. By the way, this is not the first, the first Corinthians, obviously isn't the first letter Paul ever wrote. He refers to one before. He says, I wrote in that other letter 
Don't associate with sexually immoral people. Now I'm writing to you again. Verse 11, not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality. And then at the end of verse 11, not even to eat with such a one. The association is to that one who claims to be a Christian but is living in open, significant, unrepentant sin. Paul says don't associate. In other words, the relationship with that person changes. It's not hate. It's not ostracization. It's not shunning. What is it? The relationship becomes more serious and intentional, just like a mother and father with a child who is being disciplined. Still love, still grace. In fact, an incredible amount of love. But the relationship becomes more serious and intentional because there's work to do here. There's something that needs to be addressed. Things are different. So you still love this person, but you don't hang out as if everything's okay. Seems unloving. Why does the Bible instruct churches to discipline unrepentant members? To remove them. point number three. Paul gives three reasons. Love, love, love. We'll be more specific. In verse three through five, reason number one, to save the unrepentant sinner, that's why. Reason number two, verse six through eight, to protect the purity of the church. Reason number three, verse 9 through 13, to preserve the witness of the church to the world. Friends, Jesus calls his church to practice biblical church discipline when necessary because it's how his church demonstrates love for the unrepentant sinner demonstrates love for the church and demonstrates love for the glory of God in a sinful world. If we love one another, we will practice biblical church discipline. If we love the health and purity of this church, we will practice biblical church discipline. If we love the glory and witness of the glory of God and the gospel to the sinful world, then we will practice biblical church discipline. It is the most loving thing we can do when necessary. Let's take the remainder of our sermon to look at those three reasons one at a time, and we will come back to this in the coming weeks. Reason number one. Reasons that Paul says church discipline with this unrepentant man is the solution. Reason number one, 
to save the unrepentant sinner. Do you see that? Not to punish the unrepentant sinner. To gain him back. To save his soul. This is love. This is grace. It's also incredibly hard. Incredibly sensitive. But it is the most gracious and loving thing that any biblical church can do. Verse 4 and 5. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit, Paul says, is present with you in the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Will you read that last line with me, please, out loud, the entire church? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. What is the first reason to exercise biblical church discipline? So that he will be saved. The purpose of love dominates this. Church discipline isn't punitive. It's restorative. It's not condemnation. It's salvation. Church discipline is the most loving thing that we can do for one who claims to be a Christian but lives in unrepentant sin. In verse 5, As if the word church discipline wasn't difficult enough. Look at verse 5. You are to deliver this man to Satan. What? Removing someone from the church is equal to the same as turning them over to Satan. Why? This is God's domain. That's Satan's domain. I don't know what all of this means, but I can tell you whatever it is, it is serious. Removing someone from the church puts them outside of the church where they are not afforded to the same protection spiritually as you are on the inside of the church. There is some kind of spiritual protection inside, faithful inside the local church, but not out there. This is an argument for church membership. Gordon Fee says it like this, putting him outside the sphere of God's protection within the church and leaving him exposed to the satanic forces of evil in hopes that the experience would cause him to repent and return to the fellowship of the church. Thus, the flesh to be destroyed in verse 5 is not his physical body but the fleshly sinful stance of self-sufficiency and self-rule do we turn someone over to satan as a death sentence no 
it's to destroy the flesh so that his spirit will be saved. He is currently operating according to his sinful physical body. Church discipline, putting him outside for the purpose that that sinful, fleshy self will be destroyed. When a church removes someone, turns them over to Satan, what exactly is the church declaring by doing this? Jonathan Lehman helpfully explains. Does it mean the church is sending someone to hell? No. That's an old Roman Catholic teaching. It's not true. The church cannot send anyone to hell, is not sending anyone to hell. Does it mean that a church is declaring with absolute certainty that someone is not a Christian? Again, no. The church can't see into someone's heart. But removing a person from membership is the church declaring that according to your actions, we can no longer affirm that you are a Christian. And so we will remove you, hoping that the experience of being removed, the misery of being removed, will bring you to repentance so that you will be restored, so that your spirit will be saved. It's the most loving thing that you could ever do if I walk away from Jesus. Please come get me. Please love me enough to get in my way if I ever start walking away from Jesus. And I promise you I'll do the same thing for you. In fact, that's the promise that we make in our church covenant. We will, when necessary, admonish one another. Reason number one, to save the unrepentant sinner. There's a lot more we could talk about there. We'll continue this in the next coming weeks. Reason number two. Verse six through eight. Just like it's love for that unrepentant, hopefully brother, It's love for the church. Reason number two in verse six through eight, it's to protect the purity of the church. Removing unrepentant sinners from the church protects the purity, the health of the church. Verse six through eight, let's read it. Paul uses a lot of of metaphor and illustration here from the Old Testament. I don't have time to go into all of it. Rob helpfully explained some of it just a few minutes ago. Verse 6 through 8, Paul says, Your boasting is not good. Do you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us, therefore, celebrate the festival 
not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The reason churches are called to discipline unrepentant members is to protect the purity of the church. Paul gives here the theological basis for removing this man from the church. It is you purge the evil person from among you. Look how he ends it in um, uh, verse 13. Purge the evil person from among you. Paul's pretty serious about this, isn't he? He's not mincing any words. You purge the evil person among you so that your church will be pure and healthy. In other words, church at Corinth, you have no idea how this guy is infecting your church. And by tolerating unrepentant sinners, you're infecting the spiritual health of the church just like allowing a cancer to grow. You've got to do something about it in love, with grace, according to Scripture. But you've got to. Paul uses an illustration of leaven from the feast of the unleavened bread and the Passover. And he makes use of a famous proverbial saying. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? You've heard that before, right? A little leaven leavens the whole lump. So I don't have time to go into the ancient baking process, but for now, let's just make the simple point. Here's what that proverb means. One small portion of sin infects the whole lump, the whole church. This sinful man will impact, affect, infect the whole church. The leaven represents sin in this case. The lump is the church. Paul doesn't want the community, the new community of Christ, to be contaminated by someone who is unrepentant in their sin or falsely claiming to be a Christian, which is now being evidenced by their unwillingness to obey Jesus. So he says in verse 7, look, cleanse out. This is extraordinary. Those of you who like grammar, and all of us should, from a guy who used to hate grammar, My wife used to be an eighth-grade English teacher. Eighth-grade boys hate English, right? I did when I was in eighth grade, but I love grammar now. Look at verse 7. This is incredible. Cleanse out so that you may be because you really are, for Christ has been. Man, that is loaded. He says, cleanse out sin so that you can be pure because you really are pure. Why? Because Christ has made you pure already. So in other words, be what you are. The sacrifice of the Passover lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, has secured our deliverance from the bondage of death and sin. It has made us the holy people of God. And so Paul says here, holy people of God, purge out sin so that you can be what you are. Church discipline is the most loving thing that we can do to protect the purity of our church. 
And so then Paul goes on to the next phase of that whole unleavened bread and Passover celebration. And he says, celebrate the festival. Man, here's how you celebrate the Passover. Not just with bread and bitter herbs and wine. You celebrate the Passover, the fact that Jesus died to make us pure. How do we celebrate that? By living pure lives. This guy's not. This guy's living contrary to who Christ has made him to be. You've got to do something about it. Reason number one, to save the unrepentant sinner. Reason number two, to protect the purity of the church. And why did God make the church pure? So that the church could display the gospel and glory of Christ to the whole world. Reason number three, verse 9 through 13. We must exercise biblical, loving, gracious church discipline to preserve the witness of the church within the sinful world. It's how we preserve the witness of the church within a sinful world. And I choose that preposition very carefully, within. Because Paul, here in verse 9 through 13, talks about insiders and outsiders. And just like Jesus... Paul is not calling us to be isolationists. We're not supposed to go out and live in a commune, in a monastery somewhere, and separate from the world. That's a wrong view of the gospel. Jesus died so that we would live in the world, but not be like the world, so that we can show how the world, that they can be reconciled to God again. That's the whole purpose. So verse 9 through 13, you remember that first letter I wrote? I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. (laughs) If you're going to separate your kids from sinners and they're never going to be able to see you or their siblings. You can't protect your kids from sin or sinners. It's not in Washington and it's not in Hollywood. It's in our hearts, friends. Jesus doesn't call us to go out. He calls us to live different lives, gospel lives within the world. So Paul says here, Don't associate with those, verse 11, I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone, underline this, who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of outward, significant, unrepentant sins like sexual immorality, greed, idolatry, reviling, Drunkenness, swindling, don't even eat with such a one. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church 
whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. At issue here is someone who bears the name of brother and is guilty of egregious sins that are known to the world, and the church is tolerating it. Paul says you're warping the witness of the gospel and Jesus Christ. The church is called to be holy, set apart as the people of God in a sinful world. There's a clear difference between Christians and those who love the world. We're not called out of it, but we're to be in it. And so Christians are called to live lifestyles that are clear, clear representations of what it likes to be a sinner saved by grace. And so the the emphasis on judging here, judgment is making a clear, true statement. And so what Paul is calling for here is for the church to make a clear statement about the gospel and make a clear statement about this guy's sin. Like that? That's not a Christian. Church discipline is the most loving thing we can do to preserve the witness of the church to the world. It's hard. So hard that most churches absolutely won't touch it. Because they think it's more loving to tolerate. We're not more loving than God. So we see two problems here, the man's sin and worse, the church's indifference. And we see two solutions, mourn sin and remove the unrepentant sinner. And we see three reasons to save that guy, to make sure your church is pure and healthy, and then to maintain a proper witness within a sinful world. Here's why, friends, because a healthy church is a powerful witness. My prayer is that this church will love each other and our church and the Lord enough to practice biblical church discipline when necessary. Let's pray together. God, we have talked about a very important, very difficult matter this morning that needs a lot of grace, far more grace than I have in my ability to communicate or my heart or my mind or my tone of voice. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would take your word and teach your people. And over the next couple of weeks, as we dig into the authority of the church and the purpose of church discipline, in the process of church discipline, I pray that you would give us the grace and love and faithfulness that we need to love one another well. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.